Schisms, Religion Divided, Season 1, Episode 4, The Jewish Diaspora. In the first episode, we talked about the Hellenistic world, and in the second, the Roman Empire. The third was about ancient paganism, and I was hoping this week to actually finish up our final background before we actually get to Christianity itself with ancient and classical Judaism, but I'm actually going to have to split this one into two. And I'm also sorry, this is a week late. Uh, Life happens, and this is still a new podcast where I'm still getting a feel for the schedule. Um, So do try and be flexible with me. Uh, And and we, we will still be getting into, you know, the next quite a few episodes will still be background before we get to the season's main event, the Chalcedonian Schism. But let's talk about Jews first. And we know the Jewish people have been an identifiable group for a very long time. And this is because modern genetic studies of modern Jews shows that they all share particular genetic markers, some but not all of which they share with other people of the Levant, which is modern day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and the Palestinian territories. So Modern Jews are descended from people from that region, the people that we're talking about. And the most likely historical narrative is that there were two Canaanite tribes, one identifying as Israel and the other as Judah. Their founding myths found in the Jewish Torah and Christian Old Testament are likely no more factual than the Roman founding myth that we talked about in episode two. And the likes of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and his 12 sons, including Judah, were not more likely to have been historical figures than Romulus and Remus. These two tribes over time shifted from being polytheistic, worshiping the gods of the Canaanite pantheon, to worshiping just Yahweh, who was probably the local war god, roughly equivalent to the Roman Mars. Of course, it does make sense that the war god would be the preferred god for a tribe living between Egypt and the Assyrian and later Babylonian empires. And in fact, this transition is something that you can pretty clearly read in the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. The kings identified as evil would erect altars in high places to the gods. This included virtually all of the kings of Israel and most of the kings of Judah. Some kings were considered good, and at the least, they would only worship Yahweh, but even most of them would tolerate the Asherah poles and high places, allowing their people to continue to worship the gods, even if the king only worshipped one. And it was only a few kings of Judah who would cut down the Asherah poles and tear down the high places. And these high places would have been used just like the high places used by the pagans we talked about last time. They would contain altars for one or more gods, which would probably include Yahweh. This would have allowed the people to make sacrifices where they lived, But when the high places would be torn down, the only place that they could make sacrifices would be at the temple in Jerusalem, and then only to the one God. This would ensure that the high priest and king were in complete control. After Israel was destroyed and largely deported by the Assyrian Empire, Josiah, king of Judah, led reforms that created a set of orthodoxy for worshiping Yahweh alone. Regardless of whether Josiah was a real figure or created for the sake of a mythological narrative is actually irrelevant because Josiah's reforms became the standard that the prophets and leaders of the Jewish people would use to judge their people during and after the Babylonian exile. 
Their view was that Yahweh was a jealous God and wanted them to worship him alone. But this wasn't the only viewpoint. Jeremiah 44 describes a group of exiles who believed that it was those very reforms, especially abandoning the queen of heaven, Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility, that was what led to Judah's downfall. Eventually, that group and other groups that agreed with them would likely have adopted the party line, blending in with the Jewish diaspora, or they would have held to that view and blended in with the people around them. And it's definitely clear that in the end, it was the royal and priestly class whose view won. By the time the exiles were allowed to return, and, and I guess a little bit more on that, that exile, when Babylon had a, a strategy of, and, and Assyria did before them as well, which is probably where Babylon got it, of conquering a people and shuffling people around. Deport the rulers, which would typically be both the, the noble rulers and the uh, priests. So take both the noble and priestly classes and deport them to the capital. In the case of the Babylonian Empire for Judah, that would have been to Babylon. And shuffle people across, and that would have been a little bit more of the Assyrians, they would shuffle people around the empire. So move people from one area to another. So from Armenia to Israel and from Israel to Armenia. Uh, that was a way to make it harder for national identities to form and lead to revolts and made it easier to keep everything under control. The Babylonian style of just taking the highest classes of society also would have made it a lot harder for them to revolt because the natural leaders of that revolt aren't there. And with the Babylonian exile that coincided with Babylon uh, destroying Jerusalem, including tearing down the temple, the first temple. <laughs> By the time the exiles were allowed to return and rebuild the temple under Cyrus the Great of the Achaemenid Empire, they were most likely henotheist, worshiping only one god while not denying the existence of the other gods. But some were probably monotheists who believed that their god was the one and only God, and all the others didn't exist. By the Roman period, this was probably reversed, with the majority view among Jews being monotheism. And it's worth noting that while an archaeological find did include an order from Cyrus to rebuild a temple, that temple was in Babylon, and there isn't any evidence that has been found to support Cyrus explicitly authorizing or funding the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. This has led to a lot of Jewish scholars concluding that the biblical mandate from Cyrus was not real, but they do not doubt that Cyrus allowed exiles to return to their homes and at the very least did not discourage people around his empire from rebuilding their temples. All that being said, not all the exiles returned. A large portion stayed in Babylon and a fair number moved around the Achaemenid Empire. Even before that, a fair number moved around the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon became the center of Jewish thought and scholarship, especially after the first century of the Common Era, until well outside of the scope of this season of the podcast. During the Second Temple Period, which would be from the time the temple was rebuilt in the 4th century BCE until around 70 CE, Judea was at first a province of the Achaemenid Empire until it was conquered by Alexander the Great. After Alexander, it was passed to the Ptolemaic Kingdom, and then to the Seleucid Empire, and then back and forth a few times between them. 
The Maccabean Revolt was one of the key points we talked about in the first episode about the decline of the Seleucid Empire, when the natural decay led to trying to force Hellenistic culture, complete with sacrificing pigs and eating pork and making sacrifices to all of the gods. And the book of 1 Maccabees describes the desecration of the second temple with a pig being sacrificed to a Greek god on a Greek-style altar. Fortunately for the Maccabees, the Seleucid army was busy fighting and losing a war against the Parthian Empire and losing large amounts of territory, so their revolt was successful. (laughs) There was nobody to stop them, and they were able to create the Hasmonean dynasty of an independent Judean kingdom. And this dynasty lasted until Judea was made a client kingdom of the Roman Republic. And once Julius Caesar was done taking care of Ptolemaic Egypt, they replaced the Hasmonean king with Herod the Great, who was a little bit more amenable to the Roman cause, and left him in charge of the client kingdom. The Herodian dynasty lasted until 6 CE, when Judea was just integrated into the empire as a Roman province. During this time period, there was a lot of migration of Jews across the Mediterranean. During the Seleucid and Ptolemaic periods, some moved up into Syria and some down to Egypt. Others moved up to Asia Minor, some into Greece, Italy, and Libya. The population in Alexandria was large enough that at some points there were as many Jews there as there were Greeks. And after Pompey's campaigns in Egypt, the number of Jews in Rome increased enough that there was a Jewish quarter in the city, and the Jewish quarter was a major, if not the major, trade hub for Rome. And how Jews migrated around varied. In some cases, it was voluntary to follow trade routes and commerce. I'm sure some were just curious and wanted to see the world. Others were slaves who had a tendency to be a little bit too weird for their masters, needing to take Saturday off work, not eating pork or shellfish, and not being willing to make sacrifices to the gods would have seemed really, really weird to a Roman. So they had a tendency to be granted their freedom pretty quickly. Since Rome would usually enslave many of the people in an area they conquered, it was probably a big part of how Pompey's campaigns led to a major influx of Jews in Rome. But others may have just been fleeing the war zone. And if you're already in a Roman-dominated world, and you want to get away from the Roman army, why not go to Rome? By the beginning of the Roman Empire proper, about 7% of the population was Jewish. While Jews would have made up the vast majority of the population in Judea and Galilee, there were large Jewish communities in many, if not most, of the major cities of the empire. And I'm sorry this episode is late and that it's a little short, but we're going to actually stop here. Uh, at this point, we're at, up to roughly Caesar Augustus's time. And at this point, the Roman Empire and its Jewish citizens and subjects got along well. Jews were an integral part of the empire. They were actively involved in commerce and trade. They provided a useful service to the empire and helped keep things running. So everybody was happy. But that's all about to change. And that's where we'll pick up next time when we talk about the Jewish-Roman Wars. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
again, I am really sorry this was late. I really planned to get it out last week, and I'm just going to be trying to be a little bit more forgiving of myself and try and be a little bit more happy with it taking time. This is a show where I want to be able to get it right, and that means I need to take the time to do that. Um, we do have some some feedback. In reply to episode three on ancient paganism from my mom. Fascinating. Looking forward to the next episode. <laughs> Thanks, mom. And we got another reply on episode two about Rome. This was from Stefan. Just have started to listen to your podcast. Very great topic. At Nero, I'm not sure, but I got told that he was a victim of the propaganda of his enemies like Richard III of England. Seems it's almost certain proven that he was not in Rome when it got burnt. There were rumors that actually it was not just one source for the big fire, and at that time Christians seemed to be more militant fanatics, a little bit like the Taliban. So it can be true that they just took their chance to damage the enemy and Nero let them be killed. Nero actually organized first aid, like to freeze the price of wheat. Afterward, he let rebuild the former wooden city to its own city and introduced stuff like firewalls. Also, he planned his own palace, which was located below the big construction, which we know today as the Colosseum. Named a few hundred years later as after one big column, which was left from Nero's palace's destruction. By the way, it seems like in the 15th century, they opened for a short time the sealed halls and Michelangelo got inspired by the frescoes inside. At cruelty, if you see Nero in the context of his time, actually he was not as bloodthirsty as we could think. More moderate compared to others like Julius Caesar. Uh, thanks, Stefan. Yeah, I, I needed to cover that quickly because I was covering a thousand years history in one episode. Uh, kind of reckless to cover so much history <laughs> all at one in one go. A thousand years in 15 minutes is, is I had to gloss over some of the, the nuance there. And since this isn't a podcast on the history of Rome, it's specific about a specific element of life in the Roman Empire. Uh, I haven't, I didn't go into as much detail there as I, I could have. And, you know, whether or not Nero actually did those, started the fire, um, isn't particularly relevant. The fire happened, Nero was emperor. Those are the important details. Uh, and his cruelty, oh yeah, definitely. If you compare him to the other emperors, and I did talk about several of the other emperors who were also very cruel. Uh, Nero just happened to, according to uh, the sources I was looking at, he took it to a point that offended the Senate, leading to his assassination. He is not the only emperor to have driven the Senate to assassination. Julius Caesar is one who was assassinated by the Senate. So, yeah, that's happened plenty of times. Uh, he's just an interesting case because he's been written about a lot because Christians like to hate him. Anyway, we're going to leave it there. The theme music is Tabuk by Kevin McLeod. And this is Schisms. You can find the podcast at schismpod.com or at an easier to spell domain, religiondivided.com. You can find us on Twitter, at SchismPod. You can find us in Apple Podcasts or basically anywhere else you find podcasts. 
Just look for Schisms and be sure to subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 